Welcome to the Waiting Warriors podcast. As loved ones of first responders and military personnel, we often face life situations and challenges that many others don't experience. And while each of us and our experiences are unique, together we can learn from one another and become stronger in this journey of life. Now let's step out of mediocrity. It's time to thrive. Since this week is 4th of July, I wanted to do something really special. Months ago, I was trying to think of what special thing I could do, and nothing seemed to be good enough for you guys. I had um, thought of some guest speakers who could talk about important topics, thought of doing a tribute to all of you, but then a thought came and it honestly struck my heart. Why don't you interview the most amazing waiting warrior you know of? great-grandma Esther Packard. Now, my great-grandma Esther passed away before my dad was even born, but her goodness, strength, and story continue to live on. Her husband, my great-grandpa Forrest Packard, was actually a prisoner of war during World War II, which left Esther home, alone, no job or skills, with a huge debt um, on her farm that she needed to get out of all while raising 11 children at home. Though she had 16, only 11 were still at home. Lucky for us, one of my dad's cousin, Ellen Levitt, spent years putting together a detailed history of Forrest and Esther's stories during the war together and printed a book um, years ago called They Never Wavered. So I'm going to use that to tell her story today. So let's first go back to before the war. Forrest and Esther Packard moved their family to Napa, Idaho to, or from Napa, Idaho to a 40 acre farm, three miles south of Meridian, Idaho, just before the crash of 1929. The family worked hard, but could not get ahead. By 1941, Esther was pregnant with baby number 16 in July and times were hard. The two oldest, Beth and Dee, were now married, and Jay was graduating and moving to California in June. Cleo remained home to help, and Vaughn, Donna, Floyd, Ron, Bud, and Bill were in school, with Bob, Ben, Bernie, all preschoolers. The family was still trying to pay off the debt on their little farm, and Esther and the children were doing most of the hard farm work, while Forrest worked as a carpenter in Tampa for the, for the Pacific Fruit Express, which was part of the Union Pacific Railroad. Forrest was concerned about being laid off, so when the chance came for a higher-paying job with the Morrison Knetson Construction Company working at Boise's Goin Field, he took the job. But then, when the job was completed, the company had nothing else, so Forrest was left to attempt to find odd jobs. The family remembers him often coming home with nothing. Though the family was in extreme need, Forrest and Esther still refused to join any government welfare programs. Later in the year, MK, the company he was working for before, advertised in local papers for carpenters, large equipment operators, cooks, and everything else needed to set up an active community of workers to go to a small island called Wake in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to help construct a naval airbase. The pay was excellent, and the contract was only for nine months. This opportunity would mean they could finally pay off the family farm and have money left over. 
Forrest was 48 years old. Work had been scarce throughout the Depression, but this still wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision. Forrest and Esther took a whole month to talk, lay out all the benefits and risks, pray because they were extremely religious people and devout, and then, as a united front, present it to the family. They wanted everyone to buy into it, be and feel a part of the decision. On April 27th in 1941, Forrest left Boise to California. From there to Honolulu, where he waited for the next ship to Wake Island. While there, he went to a local religious leader seeking comfort and guidance. There he received a blessing that while he was gone, he and his family would live and his family chain would be unbroken. Forrest really believed in that blessing, wrote about it home, and he and the family found a lot of strength and peace from that blessing. After about 7 to 10 days at sea, Forrest arrived on Wake Island on May 23, 1941. For the next five and a half months, Forrest lived a comfortable life, worked as a carpenter on the island, and since he was one of the older men on the island, being 48, he was a strong example of goodness and hard work to others. Meanwhile, at home, Esther was keeping the farm and family in line. Though they missed Forrest, they knew they could manage and were loving the letters and shells he would send home to Idaho. As the end of the year approached, the men on the island would hear rumors of tensions of war with Japan, but just like the rest of the country, never thought that they were in real danger, especially not while Japan was on American soil having peace talks. After having a long work week of working overtime, the men on Wake Island finally had December 7th, which was December 6th on the U.S., off. The next day, work started as usual. At daybreak, the radio broadcast of the bombing on Pearl Harbor reached Wake Island, and the operator on duty woke up the commander of the island telling of the news. While the soldiers and Marines on the island immediately began to prepare the severely undermanned and underarmed island, the civilian workers only heard rumors of the bombing and kept on working and didn't get any verification of the attack until later that morning. Still, they had nothing else to do, so they kept on working until Wake Island received its first attack. Just as the men were about to get ready to go to lunch. I'm sorry. Wake Island's population consisted of 68 naval personnel, 388 combat marines, 60 marine air corps, and a six-man army communication detail, 70 Pan-American Airways employees, and 1,146 civilian contractor workers, which my great-grandpa was one of. They had only 12 planes and only enough men to man half of the guns on the island. Most of the men, meaning soldiers, didn't even have any sidearms, gas masks, or helmets. Those men fought for 16 days, sustaining 17 air attacks and still severely damaging the enemy, destroying an estimated of 11 ships, 29 planes, and 5,700 men. 51 other bombers sustained damage from weight guns and planes. While to the rest of the country, Wake Island became the Alamo of the Pacific, the one island to actually resist the Japanese, the heroes that brought vigor back to the defeated country, the stories and news of Wake's fight gave no such feelings to Esther and the Packard family in Idaho. 
while the rest of the country was holding out hope that maybe just one would survive, just one would keep on fighting and keep the American resilience and spirit alive, Esther and her children would have no such hope. They just wanted one to live, and his obs were not as good as the others. The men were made into heroes, and that did not help Esther, and this perhaps is one of the greatest difficulties of being a waning warrior. We cherish our loved ones, and we know the work they do is good and courageous, but often their courage gives us fear. From December 8th to December 23rd, Esther lived by the radio and newspaper searching for any information of Wake, and yet all she heard was the following. December 8th. Between 20 and 30 twin-engine bombers in the opening attack caught eight of the garrison's 12 planes on the ground, put eight out of action, and killed 25 Marines. December 9. There were two more raids by planes which also carried incineraries, but due to the vigorous plan and anti-aircraft defenses, damage was less severe than on the 8th. December 10. There was a fourth air raid at dawn, while for the first time enemy warships started pumping shells onto the flat, virtually shelterless atoll. Nevertheless, Wake's guns were plied with such good effect in this double attack that a light cruiser and destroyer were sunk. The defenders also had the satisfaction of shaking up a total of eight enemy planes, destroyed two, and including this third day of battle, two transports kept out of range while 18 planes came over for the fifth air raid. Only 16 departed. The Marines still had three planes aloft. December 11. A four-enter sea plane attack. Marine flyers promptly shot it down. The convoy reappeared. Marine flyers damaged one vessel and sank a submarine. December 12. The enemy did not appear. December 13. By moonlight, bombers came over. Anti-aircraft fire discouraged them from dropping bombs. December 14. 50 bombers unloosed the heaviest air raid. Three planes were downed, plus others were damaged. The Marines' planes were reduced to one. They heroically managed to patch a second one together. December 15. At night, the 9th air raid caused no serious damage. December 16, more than 25 bombers attacked. December 17, they never came, but now practically every installation on the island is heavily damaged or destroyed. December 18, bombers devastated the few buildings left standing. December 19, there was no air raid. December 20, dive bombers evidently from a carrier roared down the island. December 21st, the enemy withheld his hand. December 22nd, land-based and carrier-operated planes attacked in large force. How large was never reported. Wake's air defenses were lost. The enemy at long last landed in force. The issue is in doubt. Marines are still fighting. Two Japanese destroyers disabled. On December 23rd, the papers announced Japanese landed on Wake Island, and the headline in all the Boise newspapers screamed, Navy admits loss of Wake. Meanwhile, the families of the Wake men received a letter stating that their loved one was missing in action. You can imagine the state Esther was in. When Wake was captured, she was overcome with worry. When her oldest daughter, Beth, heard of the news, her small family had Christmas early and quickly got to Boise. They found Esther in an emotional mess. 
Esther had worked herself into such a nervous condition she was falling apart emotionally and physically. Her family pleaded with her to believe in the blessing he received in Hawaii, to believe Forrest was still alive. Esther, though, was losing faith and hope. But her daughter Beth was able to start convincing her that Forrest was alive, but most importantly that she had the load now and she had to respond. Esther believed Forrest was alive, but she also realized the monstrous task facing her. She was overcome with fear. She felt tremendous fear for the future, fear for Forrest, fear for the dead on the farm, and most of all, fear for the welfare of her 11 children at home. Cleo, Vaughn, Donna, Floyd, Ron, Bud, Bill, Bob, Bernie, Ben, and Barbara, who was only four months old. She had these 11 children to support with no education or work experience, and Esther was at a loss of how to handle the situation. The children had questions, but Esther had no answers, and she had a complete emotional breakdown. Some even speculate it may have been severe depression. She spent so much of her time listening to the radio and reading the newspapers, longing to find something about Forrest and the men from Wake. Rumors were spreading of the atrocities and subhuman treatments that human prisoners were receiving in Japan prisoner camps, if they even made it there. Esther became frantic with worry. Beth doesn't remember Esther ever being hospitalized or on medication, but she remembers her being irrational and her decisions being out of character, so her family disabled the radio. One of Esther's sons said, The darkest time I ever remember in my life was when mother was ill. This hardy woman, who had been the rock to her own family and to countless others, found herself in a deep, weary pit. The family and friends decided it was best for the preschool-aged children to be sent away to various family members and the older children to stay and take care of, of the farm and do everything they could to make the farm look better. Even with the help, Esther still knew the bills and farm payments had to be taken care of. Forrest's paycheck had been stopped with Wake's capture, and monetary support was slow to come from the government. With the farm, garden, chicken, cows, and other animals, food wasn't the main problem, but they still needed money. A longtime friend, Emile Hansen, had become involved in selling Spencer corsets and helped Esther start selling and become a corset fitter. After many months of being out of commission with her illness, she was nursed back to health with the help of her friends and local religious leaders. Esther was on her way to good health while Forrest was on his way to a prison camp in China. But Forrest's whereabouts were unknown to the family. Because of how the Japanese soldiers handled the dog tads of the dead and the prisoners, the government and all the families were clueless and confused as to who had actually survived. Slowly, names and locations started to be released, though, in April 1942. It took nine releases of names for Forrest's name to finally be found on July 15, 1942. Knowing the men who were alive and where they were being held was incredible news for all the families. The Packard house erupted with joy the first time they heard Forrest's name mentioned. Their next goal, though, was to send and receive mail. I know so far I've only interviewed spouses on this podcast, and but I fully recognize the sacrifice other family members make while their brothers, 
sisters, sons, and daughters serve our country and communities. I would be completely disrespecting my own mother-in-law who has two sons in the military if I didn't at the very least acknowledge the love, worry, and sacrifice of these waiting warriors. So I want to read to you one of the first letters Forrest's mother, Cynthia, and his sister, Alice, wrote. Here, Cynthia. My dear son, Forrest, I long to hear your loving voice again and wish for the time when we can meet again. Earl and I both wrote to you when we first learned that letters could be sent and would be pleased to get a reply, but maybe the letters failed to reach you, so we thought we would write again. A short time ago, we was at Lola's on Sunday, and Esther and the children were also there. They were all looking fine, and little Barbara was learning to walk. She is real pretty and cute. Earl is raising lots of beets for the sugar factory, and they are doing fine. I got a letter from Dudley yesterday. He asked me to send your address with it today. I will close hoping you have kind friends to minister to your needs. I pray that the Lord will bless you with kind friends and protect you from every harm. Accept my love and best wishes as your ever-loving mother, Cynthia E. Packard. Please write to us if you can. Now, Alice. With a broken yet prayerful heart, I am writing these lines, trusting that God will help them find their way to you and that you will be permitted to answer. I receive letters often from our folks in Idaho and Canada, and they are all as well as can be expected. I am still doing missionary work, although it has been difficult these last few months as I have been so badly broken up. I know you would advise me to keep on and on. If you are permitted to answer, dear brother, if you are permitted to answer, please, dear brother, mention names of our family that I might know it is really your writing. Forrest, I most humbly ask you to forgive me of any wrong I may have committed which caused you sorrow. I have never at any time in my life ceased to love you and pray for you. May the great and powerful Heavenly Father answer our prayers very soon and bring you safely to the arms of your loved ones. Oh, that He will protect you and bless you with everything you need is my constant prayer. Your loving sister. Unfortunately, Forrest didn't receive any mail or packages his family diligently sent until some finally went through in 1944. Esther finally received her first letter from Forrest on September 26, 1942. What a relief it was to hear from him after nine agonizing months of worry. Esther pulled herself up by the bootstraps. She had to either give up or decide to do something with her life so she could raise her family how she wanted to, so they would grow up to be known for good both far and near. It wasn't until she went to work that she recognized she had the ability to do what was needed to be done to save the family. She was then able to get a hold of things and start a firm course of action. In the February 1848 edition of a magazine called The Enzyme, an article was written of Esther. It stated, Perhaps the most poignant example of the philosophy of Esther's struggle to overcome the nervous breakdown she experienced after her husband was captured on Wake Island. Esther had come away from the period with a new resolve, determined not to believe as society believed, that a woman alone could not raise 16 children and run a farm too. She remembered the dream she and Forrest shared, that when he returned from Wake Island, they could pay off the farm. The children carried much of the burden at home, and she became a Spencer corseteer, selling corsets to women door-to-door. 
Family solidarity became Esther's major concern, so she started playing games with her children. She worked hard and played even harder. She began selling corsets by going farm to farm, sometimes having women coming to the house for fittings. When Esther became successful selling corsets, her confidence skyrocketed and felt she could accomplish anything. It wasn't long until Esther was the number one salesperson in the U.S. She taught her children to work hard, but at the same time found a way of making anything the family did fun. It was not uncommon for the family to stay up late, even until 1 a.m., playing games together. If ever there was a choice between their friends or being with their mother, they always chose her. I think above all else, that speaks so much about her. She had such an incredibly daunting task and was conquering, but she did so with so much love and care for her family that they took every moment they could to be with her. By the end of 1942, Esther was much stronger and more valiant. She had no idea when Forrest would return, but she decided it was up to her to raise the family the way he would have wanted. The years crawled along, but at the same time, Esther was swamped with her many responsibilities. Esther desperately missed Forrest and his spiritual strength. She recognized that many of her children, particularly boys, were at critical age, and though she wished she could rely on her husband's wisdom and strength, she had to do it on her own. Esther was not one to outwardly show her emotions, though. Her son Bud has said, He didn't realize that for several years she felt uncomfortable with the expression of concern and caring while Forrest was gone. People continually asked how she was doing. Even though she didn't outwardly express her emotions, she was very sensitive to her children. She tried to compensate for being away so much by often bringing them a Milky Way candy bar to be split into 12 pieces or a penny all day sucker for each of them. Esther also used music and games to draw her family close together. She continually played games and had fun with her children when the work was done in the evenings. I honestly cannot fathom the energy all this required. All the responsibility, all the heartache and worry, all the work managing 11 children, and yet she still made ample time to simply play with them. By the fall of 1943, Esther had only received two letters from Forrest. Though the Pacific Island Employee Foundation would would take excerpts of all the letters received from the POWs to give everyone a more detailed view on what their loved ones were experiencing, Esther longed for her Forrest and expressed her feelings once to her close friend Josephine in a letter. No, I have not received one word from Forrest. They claim the Red Cross has definitely located him in Japan. Is that encouraging? Anything but. Had some witch told Forrest and I five years ago that the battle would be Germany and Japan against America and that Forrest would be taken prisoner by the Japs and hid away on an isolated island during the duration of war, I am sure I would have lost my mind. It is all so unreal. I wonder who could write a more interesting sauna of life than we. The clouds outside seem much like I feel sometimes. They just trinkle the rain very gently as though it were not raining at all, and then again comes down in torments, like all had been turned loose and nothing can stop it. We both had a burst last night, and today I feel all washed out, like I have been sick for months. 
and married one of the finest men in the world, one who had always been good and observed the laws of nature as they pertained to his life. Therefore, he was entitled to the blessing of a good wife for which I have always tried to be. Not only to have three meals a day and a clean shirt to wear, but to raise him a family of healthy children and teach them correct principles. And now they are getting older. The most beautiful thoughts and actions are coming out of that teaching. How many times I long for Forrest to be here to catch the remark or see that achievement. And yet, like Mary, who was watching the godlike words of the boy Jesus, she alone knew his possibilities. Therefore, all of these sayings had to have been housed up within her own heart. Like me, many times I come home from a service or feat where my older ones have taken part of, and after going to bed, I have shed tears of joy and the unknown ones, and no one knows. Like everyday record, the everyday record kept by the everyday actions of all will balance up perfectly with the finished product. Later she writes, I hope and pray I do not let my end of the job down and that I can manage and control the children as he would do if he were here. She longed for Forrest, but she kept on going. Since it was evident that Esther was a very good sales lady, Emmeline Hansen convinced Esther to open a woman's corset and apparel shop in Boise called Packard's Dress Shop in the spring of 1944. In the beginning, it probably didn't bring in much money, but it very quickly became successful. Esther continuously counted her blessings, especially since other shops were struggling and some even closed up shop. Though the family owned two cars, Esther would have the older boys drop her off at the stop so she could take the bus into Boise. The older children had to take the others to school and the milk in the back of the trailer to the creamery. At nights, they would all meet up at the creamery, pick up the kids, the milk cans, and go home. Cleo helped at home during the day while Esther was gone. She baked eight to ten loaves of bread a day, made lunches for those in school, did the laundry and most of the housework. At the appointed time, the boys would meet Esther at the, boy- at the bus stop, go home, and then they would all work on their chores until dark. Each had his own job to do. The strength of the family, however, was helping one another until all tasks were finished. I doubt that loving, hardworking strength came to the family by accident. By the middle of 1945, Esther had become a successful businesswoman, a fantastic mother, and had gained the admiration and fi- and had gained the admiration of family and friends. In the meantime, since victory had been declared in Europe in May, Japan was tightening their grip and force was being moved from a prison camp in China to South Korea and then to the heart of Japan. While most of the country was rejoicing over the victory in Europe, the Packard home didn't change much until later in the summer as news was full of victories in the Pacific. Excitement in the home was building. Esther received word that Forrest had been moved to somewhere in Japan, but nothing official had been reported. Still, because of the victory in Europe, all military resources were being aimed at the Pacific. It seemed only a matter of time until victory was declared in Japan. Forrest was going to be coming home to many changes, but Esther and the family were frantically working to get the farm ready to welcome him home. While he had been gone, rooms had been added to the house. Dee, the oldest son, who was already married, had been drafted into the Army. Jay had married and joined the Navy. Donna married an Air Force pilot, and several grandchildren were born. 
Barbara, who had been born while Forrest was working on Wake Island, was now four and a half. I can only imagine the emotional toll it was for both Forrest and Esther to know how much he missed. A feeling I know many of you know. Yet their liberation was about to come. On August 14, 1945, victory was declared in Japan. The next day, the Emperor of Japan broadcasted a surrender speech to the entire nation. On August 21, 1945, this news reached the prison camp in Niigata, and yet some were still being held captive. It wasn't until September 2nd, 1945, when Japan officials signed the surrender on board the USS Missouri, and the real celebration happened when American planes dropped barrels of food and supplies that kept the men alive for several weeks until trains came to rescue them. It was an incredibly daunting task to find all the men in all the camps. There were about 90 prison camps throughout Japan and about 34,000 POWs. It was finally on September 5th or 6th that Nagata was found and then the men were divided into two groups and traveled by cattle car train. Forrest was one of them. The men knew very little of the devastation of the atomic bombs had until they saw the destruction on their way to freedom. From Japan, Forrest was sent on the USS Ozark to Guam, then to Hawaii, and finally home, the land they loved, the United States of America. For the families back home in Boise, there was cause for celebration, but there was also another wave of confusion and fear. Poor records provided a lot of confusion, and families who had thought their loved ones were alive were informed of their death. Some were able to send and receive telegrams for home before they left Japan, but unfortunately the Packards were not. They scoured the revised list of the dead and living for days until finally, one POW, Bill Taylor, arrived home in Boise before anyone else because of his escape from the prison camps. He had been with Forrest on wake and then continued throughout the entire time in the prison camps, and he went to Meridian to visit Esther. The family was overcome with joy to hear Forrest was not only alive, but had been vital and influential in so many of the other POW's lives. Finally, after four and a half years, Forrest and the USS Ozark landed in San Francisco. It was foggy as the ship approached, but all of a sudden, Forrest could see his Esther in the large crowds and called loudly, There's my queen! I love this story. I wish I had enough time to share all that Forrest endured and the strength and kindness he showed throughout his imprisonment. But Esther, what a woman. I hope you can draw on her strength and example as I do. I hope you realize that hard times happen. We all can fall and sink into deep pits because the fact of the matter is our loved ones have jobs that cause a lot of difficulty for us. But we are warriors. We wait at home with fire and determination to hope for the best and welcome our loved ones home. I hope you guys have a fabulous 4th of July. And I'll end this with one quote. In 1942, as Esther was recovering from her breakdown, she wrote a letter to her good friend Josephine. 
In it, she talked about how every day she would say the following to herself, and I think it's perfect for all of us to do. She would say, Now, Esther, it isn't the size of the bump that counts. It's how you take it. Happy 4th of July, and God bless America and all you strong waiting warriors. I have a favor to ask. If you've enjoyed this podcast, can you leave a review and subscribe? I promise it just takes a second and that will help more people find this podcast. Also, I'd love for you to join us in our Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com slash the waiting warrior, click groups, and then the waiting warriors. Until next time, have an awesome day.